So when someone is struggling with depression and you're feeling like you're in this small, dark, confined room and you just don't feel like you have a lot of answers and other options or, you know, it's hard to think about other possibilities, but psychedelics help to facilitate that adaptability and that flexibility and heightened plasticity. And it offers these windows of mental flexibility that allows us to make a new choice in that moment. And what I'm saying is that let's leverage those same windows and actually, instead of only combining it with therapy, let's combine it with curriculum that supports creativity training. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining me and I'm very excited to share with you my guest. In November 2021, I attended the Meet Delic Conference in Las Vegas, where my guest, Laura Dawn, was a keynote speaker. Meet Delic is a conference for psychedelic wellness and entrepreneurship. Laura Dawn is the host of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast and is on the forefront of the movement between psychedelics, visionary leadership, and creativity. While attending the Meet Delic Conference, I witnessed firsthand how inspiring and engaging Laura is as a speaker as she challenged the audience to see parallels in the psychedelic experience and finding our own creative channels. Laura Dawn is an advocate, author, and international speaker who has been leading transformational retreats for over a decade and is passionate about reframing the narrative about what it means to be creative. In this episode, Laura and I discuss many intriguing topics surrounding psychedelic leadership, creativity, plant medicine integration, and some key clarifications around benefit sharing versus the concept of reciprocity. It was a real pleasure in today's remote recording world to get an opportunity to actually sit down in person in the studio with Laura. I was grateful to hold a genuine space for creative thinking and receive one another's energy during our engaging conversation. If you are interested in watching this podcast, you can view this episode on my Neurons to Nirvana podcast channel on YouTube. Laura's helping to redefine and explore entrepreneurship as well as expand our thoughts on psychedelics through a new lens. She challenges mainstream assumptions and continuously reinvents herself. Laura has a way of commanding the stage and it is clear how much passion she has in facilitating and reshaping the narrative around creativity. For more info about Laura and her work, review the show notes and the link to listen to her Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, which features many enlightening topics as well as many of the most influential leaders in the movement. Let's jump in and meet Laura Dawn. Uh, hey, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, my listeners. I uh, can't thank you enough. So tell me a little bit about yourself before we dive into your program and uh, some of the exciting news that you have coming up. Well, I've been exploring altered states of consciousness for 
I'm pushing 24 years at this point. So I had my first high-dose psilocybin experience when I was about 14, 15, and have been journeying with these medicines pretty much consistently over all these years. And I was raised by two entrepreneurs. I was sort of that kid that loved to beat to my own drum ever since I was a little kid. Like, okay, everyone's going this way. Can I go that way? <laughs> I didn't want to ever just be put in the box. And right. I was terrible at school and really didn't like the, the institutionalized education system, really didn't work for me and my brain. And my parents, you know, all the way back then, it, it's it's a little bit of a different time because I was raised by two entrepreneurs and everyone's an entrepreneur these days. But being a kid raised by two entrepreneurs was definitely a little of a different experience for me at that time. And yeah, I would say that, you know, all of that imprinting that I had as a child um, has really set me up for where I am today. There's this sort of parallel track from being an entrepreneur my own my, my whole life and um, working with psychedelics that have really put me just at the forefront of this intersection between creativity, psychedelics, and visionary leadership. And I can dive more deeply into all of those, but that, that the key, I would say, is you know being raised by two entrepreneurs that really taught me what visionary thinking is all about, and then having these profound experiences with medicines that really enhance that and real strong overlap between those experiences, and then also being raised as an athlete, mm -hmm. where I had coaches teach me you know the power of visualization from a very, very young age. And I think we lose that as we get older. We forget how to tap into those imaginal realms in our in our consciousness, in our minds. And I think plant medicines are teaching us how to do that. So I have to ask, go back to what you mentioned, I've, and I've read in your bio, you said you had your first uh, high dose of psilocybin when you were 14 or 15. Mm. What was that like? Because I did it much later, or you know, not until college. But you yeah. said they made a huge, profound... Yeah. Uh, effect on you? Yeah, you know, I really felt very bored with waking consciousness <laughs> as a child. Honestly, I was right. one of those kids that I would count the minutes between recess and lunch. It was like, oh my God, this is never ending, you know? And yeah. I was actually so excited at the end of the day to be able to go to sleep. And my dream realm was just so alive and so rich. And I would fly in my dreams and and it was just like living another life. And I would have these conversations with my family where I'd be like, did that really happen in real life or did that happen in my dream? And this is like, there's a profundity of, of richness in other states of consciousness that I was experiencing at a young age. And so... I think that was really actually the entry point for me of, wow, there is so much more to this reality and look at this other reality that seemed way more interesting to me. And I would literally have that feeling of, I just want to go home and go to sleep so I could actually <laughs> go into this other dimension yeah. that is far more fascinating. And and then, you know, over the, that time, I was kind of a, a boundary pusher. You know, I was not, I was just- I was as well. Yeah. <laughs> He's a little shithead, I think, for my parents to deal with. Same. But at the same time, you know, my parents really encouraged me. And uh, I'm so grateful. The two things that I would say really shaped so much of my life was my father telling me, have ideas. If you have an idea and you can see it in your mind, you can make it a reality. And he would tell me that all the time over and over again. And my mother 
at the same on a, on a different parallel track, she used to tell me, "I trust your judgment." And you know, just a long story short, my my mother was uneducated with four children. I was the youngest of four kids. So my my mom went back to school and and went did her undergrad and then her graduate degree when I was about eight years old. Okay. So she, I was like the last of the of of her litter, you know. And she, I remember I was about six or seven, and she showed me how to use the washing machine, and she showed me how to use the <laughs> stove, and you know, I was also training as an athlete at that time, and my brothers had a lot of responsibility to help raise me and take care of me but My i was sisters for me That's yeah crazy. radically <laughs> independent and so i think as as like a survival strategy my mother was like okay this one i'm gonna teach her you know i trust your judgment and school actually really didn't work for me and i would skip school all the time and i was starting to do a lot of psychedelics at that time during like tuesday night you know and then not go to school on wednesday and i'd run into my mom at the mall or something and really? she'd be like i trust your judgment what do you need the support how do you want to get through this and how you have to graduate so what do you need and i said i don't want to go to school anymore i just want to be homeschooled and i actually did one hour of tutoring for my subjects to replace an entire week because somehow I was born out of the womb with this brain that thought in terms of efficiency, time efficiency. I was like, this is such a waste of time to be in school. And so my parents supported that and they got me a tutor and I effectively got my license at the day I turned 15 and I had my own car. And so it was like this radically self-independent, you know, upbringing that was also relatively unsupervised. And I'm sorry to my mother, Lucy, and my father who are listening to this cringing right now thinking, oh, God, <laughs> we look like horrible parents. But, you know, everyone's doing the best that they can. And so to get to your question, you know, during my first do high dose experience, it was just so liberating. And we were out on, um, we were outside of Montreal. I grew up in Montreal and we were out in the suburbs and we were outside in nature. And it was this just beautiful experience of being able to look up at the universe and contemplate the vastness of it and the irony of it and just the cosmic joke that it all is. And to be able to start asking bigger questions of like, why am I here? And what is this all for? And contrasting that with looking at systems, the schooling system being like, what? the fuck like right. this is not you know and so it's been a long track of of being you know that's why i like to joke and my, my mother does hate it when i say this but i like to joke that i was hand raised by psychedelics <laughs> and forged into the woman that i am today with a lot of their their encouragement not that they were supporting me to do the you know these substances but they were encouraging me to trust my my judgment Although the prefrontal cortex before 21 is not fully formed. So, right. you know. That's correct. Yeah. We're different in that regards because uh, I was secretively, you know, a couple times on psilocybin uh, around my folks and then LSD once. Mm -hmm. And I hid that from them. They were different, but they were, my parents were, my dad was born in 1933. So LSD was very abstract. Now, he did introduce me to Alice Huxley. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, you know, doors of perception, brave new world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I picked up the interest kind of through that and uh, mm -hmm. the Beat Generation, uh, Kerouac, mm. uh, through literature. And so I kind of, in fact, my mother said, my mom said, if you take LSD, you're going to go become schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. I, of course, rebelled like you and mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> didn't listen to her. 
But um, tell me about, I've listened to your episode about uh, flows, five flows of creativity. <laughs> and I love that episode. And I can just, you sort of exude your passion. Tell me about how there is, uh, why you're so passionate about re revisiting the narrative of creativity in parallel with the psychedelic renaissance. Yeah, okay. So, well, I think it's really interesting, and this is sort of how I even found myself. It's it's actually totally ironic, and even just building off of this, this story of my upbringing. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown's research, but she talks mm -hmm. about uh, you know, she's done so much quantitative research and she has like 400,000 bits of data. And she found that about 80% of people had a negative experience in school that then impacted them for the rest of their lives and, and planted sort of a, a seed of belief that was limiting. And of that 80%, about 50% was around creativity. And so we live currently in a culture where we are living in outdated narratives around what creativity is even. So there's this huge creativity gap right now where people who are familiar with the psychedelic space, you might know, you know, Paul Stamets name. He said, we're living in a creativity crisis. And a lot of people echo that sentiment and that statement. And so right now, most people don't recognize it, but like even huge organizations like the World Economic Forum, for example, they call creative thinking the number one most important skill set to cultivate for our time. And so it's ironic that I'm at the forefront of this space because I had to overcome my own limiting beliefs about creativity because I was one of those kids in school, which is part of the reason I hated school, was that this teacher sitting would come over to me and I was sitting next to this girl, Jenica Lounsbury, who, you know, has played this funny role in my life at different stages and chapters of my life, but she could draw and I couldn't draw. And so the teacher said to me, you know, you'll never be creative because you can't draw. And this happens all the time. And it's not just statements like that, but it's our whole education system is not revolved around teaching students creative thinking skills. I mean, we even have to move beyond the narrative that creativity is just the arts, that you need creativity to be at the forefront of science, you Absolutely. know? And yeah. so it, it's so necessary in everything that we do. And yet we literally are living in this pervasive culture that has Im embedded in it deep myths about create creativity and what it means to be creative. And so most people have the belief that you're either creative or you're not. You either have it or you don't. You're born with it. There's the select few and then there's everyone else. And for pe people listening who are familiar with Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset. Yes, fixed mindset and growth mindset. Yeah, they've done something similar to look at the uh, inherent beliefs that people have about their own creative capacity. And so people who have a fixed belief, those beliefs that either you have it or you don't, you're born with it. There's those select geniuses and then everyone else and you're mostly likely in the everyone else mm -hmm. category. Um, that that actually impedes your capacity to not just express yourself creatively, but to solve problems creatively. And so there's a direct correlation between our beliefs and how creative we are. And most people also think that 
you can't train creativity, which is also false. You know, we know now from over, there was this one study that did a 70 meta analysis review over 70 studies, and it conclusively shows that creativity training works. And that even engaging in an hour of creativity training for leaders, for example, that you are perceived as a more effective leader and that even one hour of creativity training that you actually generate more creative solutions to the challenges, you know, so that that you're being presented with. And so we can also really look at the the educational system, which is focused on what's called convergent thinking over divergent thinking. And it's also a misnomer that a lot of people who start to learn about creativity are like, oh, creative thinking is divergent thinking. It's one aspect. So divergent thinking is, it's almost like a diamond. So when you have uh, idea generation or brainstorming, we think about it as no big deal, but actually brainstorming was a process that was invented by Alex Osborne in 1963 with a whole set of processes around it. And we, it's one form of, of ideating and brainstorm, brainstorming um, and divergent thinking, but there are many other practices that you can ga- engage in as well. And so we're not taught those skills in elementary school. We're taught what's known as convergent thinking, which is there's one solution And you have to find that one solution. So it narrows the focus. And we're essentially teaching children out of creativity. So kids are really, really creative. And in some ways, kids are actually much more creative and better at solving complex problems than adults are in certain situations because they don't they're they're in a mode of thinking called unconstrained cognition that is actually very similar to the psychedelic state. So there's a lot of interesting overlap there. But I, you know, I would just say that we're we're living in this time that experts call a VUCA world, you know, a world marked by volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And we are being called to remember who we are and we're being called to actually step into and shift our narrative and embody the belief that we are all creative because it's actually what makes us human Mm -hmm. and it's fundamentally our birthright. And when we shift our belief around it, it impacts behavior. The narratives we tell ourselves, the beliefs that we hold, it impacts the behaviors and the actions that we take in our lives. And that's why I'm so passionate about the intersection between psychedelics, creativity, and leadership is because we're, we are all also visionary leaders, whether we are embracing that or not. We all have visionary capacities. We've mostly just been educated out of them and taught out of those capacities. So, how long have you had your uh, your program? The three it's now three months, right? Mastermind program. Yeah, so I've run a, a bunch of different programs over the years. Yeah, so I'm currently in the middle of a twelve week uh, program for it's a psychedelic leadership program for women in the space, and um, I'm on week nine of twelve weeks, and it's just been such an incredible container to hold space for with 37 women who came into this cohort. And yeah, I I like to adapt my programs and evolve them as I evolve too. So I I don't, uh, yeah, I'm always evolving. And and so I am looking at doing a year-long program after this program. Is this going to be virtual or where where will this happen? Is it just a collective virtual? Yeah, right now it's all online. So yeah, the... 
Before this moment, I was actually running retreats for 10 years. So I built a volcanic hot spring retreat center in Hawaii. That was really my focus. And then the volcanic eruption happened, and that changed everything in a heartbeat. And so it was actually really through that time, and that's a a really big part of the story of actually how I found myself to be where I am right now, Um, that and then going into you know, this really intense dark night of the soul that was a really powerful cocoon of metamorphosis to move through. And then to find myself leading the most successful retreat of my career in Costa Rica over New Year's 2020 with over 40 change makers from around the world. And then to, you know, be faced with COVID. So essentially, this is this is the essence of what I'm talking about, is looking at how we can learn to adapt in the face of change. And that actually really is the 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 center point if we look at the the intersection between psychedelics, creativity and visionary leadership. And so it was during uh, right when COVID hit, I was like, okay, this is going to be a minute. And that's when I decided to go back to graduate school and to take the time to pause on running retreats and be able to um, just up-level all my skill sets so that I can step back out into the the in-person event space again, because I, I really, really miss it. So, yeah. So I read an, uh, an article about you where you, I think you phrased it, you were in a very dark space, as you mentioned, but where, how did you, there was like a pinhole of light. What exactly happened to get you out of that darkness? Yeah, right before the volcanic eruption, uh, w- just to set the context here, you know, we, gosh, I'll take even a step further back. I had a vision in a ceremony that I was going to buy land, and it was a very strong call to build a place where people could come and heal their relationship to their bodies, to this land, to food, to nature, be able to reset, and and that I was going to get married. And uh, I ended up meeting my, my ex-husband now, but my future husband-to-be in that moment, that week. And a few years later, we ended up buying a raw piece of 10 acres of land. And at this point, I had already been living off-grid for years. So this being in Austin right now, this is my first time living <laughs> inside on-grid in right. 20 years, which is just kind of mind-blowing to think about. But we had a vision to build something really special. And we had no money at the time, but the vision was really strong. We even, you know, pulled a VW van onto the land. It didn't even run anymore. And there was no power, no water, you know, no electricity. And we just started hauling ass, like real work, hard labor, and clearing the land and starting to plant fruit trees. And we, we, I had this like multi-million dollar vision with very, very little money. And I was hustling to make it happen. And uh, at that point, I'd already been running retreats, so it was time to build the place that we wanted to build to be able to host the kind of retreats that we wanted and uh, and really to sort of meet uh, our own needs of what we wanted to build because nothing existed. I had all these ideas of how I wanted to lead retreats and nothing existed, so we had to build it, you know, which is the essence of creative visionary leadership. 
And so we built this incredible place and miracles happened to allow this to come to manifestation, like real <laughs> many, many, many miracles, including um, a moment where I was able to sell my first online brand that I had built to a million and a half people and in the middle of a ceremony prayed for a miracle. And the next day got a message from this company that said, okay, we want to build your brand. And I was able to, by the end of the week, have six figures in my bank account to then be able to build the retreat center because <laughs> we were in this like sink or swim moment, you know? And like the first two years of that project, it, it was literally like Noah dumping cold water on my head at the end of the day, you know, and pooping in the woods and, yeah. you know, digging our first compost hole toilet, you know? <laughs> so it was real. And then we ended up selling that brand and investing it into building an incredible place. And when we bought the land, we didn't know that we were going to tap into hot water. And miracles upon miracles happened. And we ended up building a volcanic hot spring retreat center. And we had just spent years of our lives, blood, sweat, and tears. And we had just sort of arrived. Okay, I had just spent a year training a retreat manager to take over the space. And Noah and I were about to go on our very first vacation in about eight years. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And right when that happened, um, we were ho hosting a ceremony on the land. And right before the ceremony, I was crying and I just felt the land. And, and just the way the medicine tunes you in with just, yeah, just a different dimension of, of energy. Yeah. And so right before that circle, that gathering, I just felt this really strong intuition that that was going to be the last gathering on our land. And then after that, um, about a couple of weeks later... I had a solo journey with my own preferred medicine. And that night I had something really profound happen. And after years and years and years of working with medicine, I would say that was the first time in my life that I really understood what it meant to surrender and to let go, like really fully let go. And there was this moment and, you know, I'm just in the, the, the dimensions of consciousness and I'm at my altar and I really, for the first time in my life, said, okay, spirit, I'm ready for whatever needs to happen to really put me on my, my true path in this life and to be of really the highest service to people. And it felt like the tectonic plates within my being shifted. And that night I picked up my guitar and this song came through all in one fell swoop, which has only happened maybe a dozen times in my life. And it was a long, very intricate song. And I was like, where is this coming from? And, and the next morning I woke up to hundreds of earthquakes under my feet. And that whole week there was thousands of earthquakes until a really big earthquake hit, a 7.0 that devastated our home, our land, this, the center. And... Um, and we were, and I'll never forget the moment, I was standing in the garden planting turmeric for next season, and my friend ran over and said, uh, the road split open in the subdivision above the land, and lava started flowing from that crack. Wow. And that was the beginning of many, many months of lava flowing just above us, and we had this little ridge that protected our land, and many of our friends and family in the community lost their homes during that time and it really split our entire community up but the pinhole of light i i was tracking that coming okay. full, full, full circle, full circle. Okay. yeah Sorry. <laughs> uh, but that pinhole of light during that time was four lines from the song that was 
literally the only thing I could think about that entire time because we were wearing gas masks and there's this it was like being in a war zone, not to compare it to what people are going through in war times right now. Uh, but there's these huge openings that happen in the earth and it sounds like a bomb going off because it's uh, pushing out a large amount of gas emissions. So you couldn't breathe the air. It was killing all of the plants and it was very traumatic time. And the only thing going through my head were the four lines of the song, trust in the great unknown, trust that the way will be shown, trust that the highest will unfold. Look into your hands. Those are the keys that you hold. And there's a whole song around it, but those were the lines that I just kept singing over and over and I over again. I love those lines, lyrics. And I would have died without them. It was the most excruciatingly painful time of my life. And we flew to Costa Rica where a friend uh, of a friend took us in and I was like non-functional for two weeks. I couldn't even form sentences. Catatonic almost. Yeah, yeah. It was really, really intense. And I worked with plant medicines during that time to help me move through the like depth of grief and actually what it means to do this work, which is getting real with the true nature of reality, which is fundamentally impermanent and always changing. And that's also the intersection of psychedelics and creativity and visionary leadership is, is impermanence and change and looking at how we dance with this energy of life to create and not for the end destination, you know? We're all gonna be six feet underground. That's true. For me, it, it took ayahuasca to, I took La Medicina, I went down to South America because I was grieving the loss of my father who was my best friend. And I was having treatment resistant depression, nothing was working. And I'm talking about years had gone by where it would just every now and then hit me in the face with a like a frying pan. And I just had enough. I mean, talk therapy is helpful, but um, I knew and had read a bunch about ayahuasca. And uh, it was something where I have ADHD and uh, my mind can be restless often. But if I'm focused on something or hyper-focused or interested, then I'm all in. And I just took a huge leap of faith, and that's when I realized that there are other dimensions. And uh, I've heard you talk about that. Uh, if you want to elaborate, what are your feelings on that and what you the other realms of consciousness that you've discovered during your journey with psychedelics? Yeah, I mean, that's such a huge question, and it's pretty <laughs> much like my favorite thing to contemplate and talk about and experience. I think that you know, you reference doors of perception. So mm -hmm. we as human beings have perceptual apparatus that allow us to perceive a very small slice and sliver of reality. And just because we can't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And what medicines do is they open up our perceptual field of awareness to tune into a different dimension that is, you know, as Maria Sabina said, it's a world that is far away and right here. And so absolutely, you know, it, it gives us the the opportunity to have an uh, a real experiential understanding of what some might call quantum reality, uh, where we could look at the intersection and the overlap between quantum reality and the spirit realm. When I talk to 
um, shamans from Ecuador who say very sim- similar things that Einstein said, you know, that you go into the spirit realm and mm-hmm. that's where you influence change. And Einstein said the field is the sole governing particle or the sole governing agency of the particle. So we know that actually reality is made up of fields, interconnected fields. It's actually a very shamanic worldview. And so when we're able to alter our perception in a way that opens us up to see, oh, there are different ways of seeing. There are different ways of seeing. And that actually we create first and foremost in the dimensions of consciousness. Con- that's where we go in and shape and mold our reality. And then it shows up in physical 3D reality for us to see. But that is the essence of creativity. It's the essence of visionary leadership. That Everything that we see was first and form- foremost a thought in someone's mind. Everything in this room, this setup, someone thought this first before it happened. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was your first experience microdosing or were you taking, you were doing full on ceremonies of all different plants? Yeah, I only really started working in more intentional, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if I even want to use that word. I'm more of a... I know a lot of people and people have said this to me recently about, you know, you have a responsibility with your voice. And I really do believe that. And I'm careful about what I say. I think we need to not be like poo-pooing, quote unquote, recreational use. I think that uh, there's a, a place for that. I think we have to become more psychedelic aware and literate in our culture so that we understand that this is just basic upbringing, that you understand peer support and safety and harm reduction and all of that embedded in a culture. Um, But some of my most profound moments actually were not within a ceremonial context or container, so to speak. But we could also say that, you know, everything is sacred. It's like, why is this one thing sacred and this other thing not sacred? But it wasn't until after I had done years and years of working with uh, psilocybin and then really some years of deep diving with LSD, which was also a very profound teacher in my life, that I sat in ayahuasca ceremony for the first time. And in that ceremony, it was like, okay, I've been preparing all these years to meet you and Next, this was a next level initiation. And then it was really just my primary focus to work with that medicine. And I'm not serving medicine. And I think that's really important to be exp- expressing clearly. Um, I'm not selling or because serving. You're doing and so- it virtually, yes. What I'm doing is creating curriculum, and there's so much open space in the field right now. And if we actually really took a step back and look at the, the primary lens through which most people in Western culture are looking at psychedelics is through the lens of how do we work with medicines to reduce mental illness. So that's the primary sort of setup and the, the, the narrative around that is and, – and it informs what we understand of set and setting and the context – in terms of of how people prepare and integrate and then what actually goes on in in the journey. And I'm very open and I'll just say, you know, I I don't hold the the mentality that there's one right or wrong way. You know, I think that there's really a buffet of opportunities and experiences that people 
can have and that it's really about uh, being safe and, you know, trusting your intuition and vetting your facilitators appropriately. And I have a guide for that on my website in case people are listening to this. I also have, you know, how to have a safe psychedelic journey at home. And I'm not advocating for that, but I'm saying that we need to make that education available for people. But essentially what I'm doing and what I'm really passionate about talking about is the is just illuminating for people that the lens through which we look at psychedelics matters. And right now we're looking at it through predominantly a lens. And I'm not talking about a shamanic worldview. I'm just really talking about like in Western culture. Very myopic. Yeah. And, and that really psychedelics and medicines are very multifaceted, they're almost like Swiss army knives with a million add-ons. So if you, how you approach it and the mindset you have and the intentions that you approach it and the lens through which you look at it through influences how you relate to this very multifaceted, they're not, it's not easy to sort of put your finger on it and say, oh, it's like this. That's why when all the research was happening in the 60s, they had all these different names because they were like, wow, when we look at it under this microscope, it looks like this. But then when we look at it under this way, it looks like that. And so I'm really passionate about just bringing awareness to that and that I think it's important for us to remember that um, that when we, even though there's not been a lot of uh, scientific research done on the validation of psychedelics as creativity enhancement or enhancers, that they facilitate uh, greater creative thinking or creative problem solving, that actually the, when we look at the literature through the lens of creative research, we can actually make a really strong case that psychedelics do help support creativity and like just look at our culture, you know, look at the doors Absolutely. of perception and <laughs> yeah. Alex Gray and all the visionary artists and the writers and the musicians. And I don't know about you, but I know so many people who never touched medicine in their life. And then they go sit in ceremony and they didn't have a musical bone in their freaking body. And then three months later, they're popping out songs, you know, and this happens all the time. And there's, there's so much, we intuitively know that to be true. Um, but we, we, haven't really given it the attention that it deserves. And part of it is because just like psychedelics are really hard to pin down and put your finger on, so is creativity. It's very, very multifaceted. And and that's why I feel like looking at them together is just infinitely forever for the rest of my life. I will be just scratching the surface at looking at that intersection. But when we look at the at psychedelics and paint a different narrative, which is essentially what I've been spending the last two and a half years in graduate school doing is going through the existing literature and making a strong argument for the ways that we can connect seemingly hidden dots. For example, um, we now understand that psychological flexibility, which is essentially a term that says um, shows us how we adapt to change and take values driven action in the face of challenges. So we know that psychological flexibility mediates the reduction of depression it, with psychedelics. And we also know that psychological flexibility and enhanced psychological flexibility is related to creative achievement. So there are ways that we can say maybe for the same reasons that psychedelics help to support the healing of depression is actually the same reasons that they help us to think more creatively. And psychological flexibility is one great example of that. If you think about depression or addiction, for which I am very intimately familiar with both of those experiences and expressions in my own life. 
you know that actually working with addiction is like being in a hamster wheel where you really don't have a lot of mental space to think about anything else except for what you're struggling with. It's hooked. It's deeply ingrained mental patterns. Okay. And when we look at, for example, this great, one of my favorite quotes about creativity that says by Arthur Kostler, creativity is the defeat of habit by originality. Creativity is the defeat of habit by originality. We could also say that is the same for the healing of depression and the healing Absolutely. of addiction. I love that. Yeah. It is the healing of it is it is the defeat of habit by originality, and that's what uh, that's essentially what psychedelics help us do. So when we have, and I don't know how much we want to get into the weeds here, but Dr. Robin Cart Harris and his entropic brain theory. I mean, there's a lot there, and when we look at these modes of unconstrained cognition, and really, okay, this is just when you think about a Venn diagram with psychedelics, creativity, and visionary leadership in three overlapping circles, the one word that you can put in the middle, there's a few. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what would go in the overlap between that. Um, that's a great question. Creativity and how it's helped, psychedelics have helped me is knocking down the construct, the walls, like freedom, liberating, uh -huh. liberation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So flexible thinking, that's yep. one, one word Absolutely. we can put in the middle. Adaptability. And so when we actually look at, for example, what psychedelics do in the brain in the 5-HT2A receptors, and Dr. Robin Cart Harris talks about this, and there's a great article that he wrote or a paper, uh, A Tale of Two Minds, uh, all about pivotal mental states. And so what what that receptor does is it's it's essentially equated to adaptability in the face of change. So when someone is struggling with depression and you're feeling like you're in this small, dark, confined room and you just don't feel like you have a lot of answers and other options or, you know, it's hard to think about other possibilities, but psychedelics help to facilitate that adaptability and that flexibility and heightened plasticity. And it offers these windows of mental flexibility that allows us to make a new choice in that moment. And what I'm saying is that let's leverage those same windows and actually, instead of only combining it with therapy, let's combine it with curriculum that supports creativity training, creative thinking skills training, creative problem solving, leadership development. And there's already so much overlap between psychedelics and leadership development, too. So, I, yeah. So really what my passion is, is creating curriculum for people to be able to understand how we can leverage these experiences so that we can really truly remember who we are, whether that's someone on the pathway of healing from depression or addiction or someone who's stepping out to take a big risk to be able to lead in a new way. We need more people willing to step out of the status quo, you know, <laughs> to be able to. Absolutely. I mean, that's why you and I are talking right now is mm -hmm. I want people to understand and be given an alternative solution rather than just talk therapy, which is great. That's one part of it. But then pharmaceuticals that we've been given for years as like the only option. When there are plant medicines that can solve the 2A receptors that you're talking about, serotonin, dopamine, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, am I right? But that's all interrelated. 
I do want to get in the weeds with you. Can you talk about your, you mentioned on your podcast, the transcranial neurotrans uh, stimulation, neurostimulation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, Balder Arnheim's. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, there's a device and there's that's looking at different technologies uh, that you can work with to enhance um yeah, di- different cognitive states. And I think that that's, that's actually really sort of the underlying, um, yeah, most people, when they think about creativity, it's not a single mental state. It's actually we benefit from fluid states of mind, from varying cognitive states. And so we, we can look at technologies, but like really, and so, yeah, he has a, a device. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, Plato Sciences. I was like, God, I'm reaching for my brain there. Uh, Plato Sciences uh, is the name of his company. And they were really focused on creativity. And now they're also doing research on how transcranial neurostimulation helps in the reduction of depression. And anxiety, and, right? Yeah. And and so I don't really know. I can't really speak to their research so much. But they're, I mean, and we also mentioned uh, Dr. Dave earlier, and he has the Apollo, you know, neurostimulation device. And so, yeah, these technologies are all different ways that we can. And psychedelics are probably the most powerful technology that we have access to and that we're just starting to scratch the surface and understanding how these technologies, these biotechnologies influence consciousness and how we can leverage those experiences to think bigger. And I think like that's really the narrative that we shouldn't be talking about this. Like, what's the point of having this conversation at all? What is the point? Like, really, why talk about psychedelics at all if we're not talking about how to work with psychedelics to create a better planet where we're actually creating and supporting biodiversity for the next seven generations? We have to get real about this moment in time. We are on the precipice of the sixth mass extinction. We cannot solve the problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And psychedelics help us to think differently, to think bigger. They actually teach us all the creative thinking skills that we need to be more effective at navigating a VUCA world, a time that's so volatile, that is marked by exponential and rapid change. And if we learn these skill sets, these skill sets of adaptability, of creative thinking, that even the World Economic Forum is saying is the most (laughs) important thing that we need to teach people today. And remember, we're all products of an industrialized education system that didn't teach us any of this. And at the same time, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that medicines are showing up on the scene right now and entering the mainstream as as rapidly as they are, which is not necessarily fully a good thing. So I'm not saying, yes, everyone needs to be doing psychedelics. Actually, really check in with yourself. You know, and if I was really being responsible, I'll say check in with your doctor, although me, but you know, I think that we we do need to actually frame the conversation within this time that we're living in, because what what's what else is there <laughs> to really be talking about? Yeah. So let's talk about that. You were at South by. I mean, how many seminars were there? There's a real renaissance. It's it's coming back from the days of the 60s and and so forth. What are your feelings about where we are right now? And yeah. Your role in destigmatizing uh, how people, mm-hmm. in, particularly in Western societies, uh, think of it. 
Yeah, it's so funny. People have asked me this question before about um, de- my role in destigmatizing psychedelics. And I feel like I've, yeah, it's funny because in some ways I don't pay attention. I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. So there's a, a huge mainstream that's starting to come online around psychedelics. And I'm sort of like, okay, this is my path. I'm doing my thing and I'm speaking it. And I think that, yeah, being being on the path that I am is sort of indirectly stigmatizing. And also, you know, I've been talking about psychedelics for 20 years. It was such a different time 20 years ago than it is now. Um, but yeah, I feel like we're still really at the beginning wave of medicines entering the mainstream, although we it is exponentially happening. And I think we do need to be very careful and we're lacking integration support. We're lacking trained professionals. We're lacking um, proper education around safety and harm reduction. So I think, yeah, we're, we're in this phase where everyone who can and feels called and inspired to support the movement Uh, it's really helpful. Now, that being said, we have a lot of people, and this happens a lot, where people have their first journey, and then they want to lead in the space and launch a company. And and I really appreciate that sort of, you know, gusto. And I think that this also referencing Dr. Robin Cart Harris's uh, research, he found that there's a pretty split bell curve between people who move into... um, more like ego dissolution and letting go of identity, and then 50% where it amplifies ego and it amplifies uh, narcissism. And so I think it's it's this time where it, we're being invited to hurry up and slow down. Yeah. You know, but also really helping to support the education. We're, we're, we're learning how to become more psychedelic literate. It's just like teaching literacy in a culture. It was actually Paul Austin. I heard him make this analogy at a conference I was speaking at uh, in Salt Lake with him. And I thought, yeah, that's such a great analogy that, you know, there is a time where literacy is spreading. And if you get a certain amount of the population literate, then, you know, everyone's going to learn. And so we're kind of in that in that phase. And everyone's who who's in the psychedelic space right now feels like there's just so much to do. It's a new frontier. That's what I, how I feel, and I think it's a very old frontier. But it's a, a re, it's regenerated, or so to speak. I mean, a lot of people have weren't paying attention to it until I would say relatively. Um, I don't know. I mean, I was experimenting with it in college, but now we have. It seems to be like in very popular on the forefront of, as you stated, a solution for mental health when. It's not it's not like Prozac or Wellbutrin or anything. Mm-hmm. You can just take it mm-hmm. and it's not a cure-all. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about that in your program, Integration. And also it's important for people who are out there listening who might be interested in partaking in plant medicine. They need to realize the importance of integration because you can't just – if you go to a retreat, it's hard to go back to your old life mm-hmm. and job and just say, okay, like with a mound of clay, what am I supposed to do now? Because there's, mm-hmm. it can be sensory overload. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I would say more for – so more of my market, I'm working more with high-functioning leaders right. who have been working with medicines for some time. Um, 
so and that's including your women's yeah yeah classroom. i have a, a few people who are a little bit newer to the medicine space but mostly people have been on the path for for a while and so yeah so that's a little bit more of who i'm working with but for what you're mentioning in terms of just people listening going through some of their first psychedelic experiences um there, I would reference uh, Dr. Rosalind Watts is about to release a 12-month program. It's an integration program that she called the ACER model based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And I think it's it's probably going to be a great program. I think she does really great work. I just interviewed her on the podcast. She runs through an outline of the 12 months uh, based on Celtic wisdom that she draws upon. And uh, ACER stands for Accept, Connect, Embody, and Restore. And she she goes through a whole program around that. So for people listening who are looking for a great resource, I also have a free guide on my website that I created. It was like maybe a 30 or 40 page guide on integration and just things that you it's helpful actually to read that guide before you go into your your first journey and even really looking at how to prepare yourself for your first journey, you know, and and for me, one of my best recommendations that I would suggest people to to start practicing is start cultivating a meditation practice. If you want to st sit in ceremony or you want to work with psychedelics, start learning the power of meditation because it's the same technology. Meditation is, a, is also an ancient technology for understanding the nature of mind. And that's what psychedelics do times 100. So times 1,000. You know, so start with that technology. Start with breathwork technology. That's a powerful place to start. Breathwork is also a way to alter states of consciousness. And um, and then, you know, with the microdosing movement, that's also a, sort of an easy entry point for people as well. How many of your, uh, your group clients uh, do you think have ADHD? Oh, gosh. Mm, it's probably not one of like the main ones, but it it, it definitely comes up. Mm -hmm. I was interested because I have ADHD, and mm -hmm. for me, uh, meditation is hard to mm -hmm. do because mm -hmm. my mind is always racing. Mm -hmm. And I was something when I've been listening to your podcast, I was curious about um, ayahuasca. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, you can set an intention. I set an intention to try to see my father, who I saw in, for a nanosecond. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, Mother and I said, nope, we're going to go in another direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever tried different techniques? Because uh, that's the other thing is that there are so many different ways and practices. I find open focus awareness to be really helpful for people who work with ADHD and have a really hard time focusing the mind because it's a different way of perceiving. It's a different way of paying attention to to, I want to say, dimensions of space. Well, because I asked uh, the same question to a guest of mine who's a Vedic astrologer, mm -hmm. astrologist, and he he said, sometimes it's, it may not be for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also really do believe that even anyone with ADHD can learn how to take a moment and even somatic embodiment practices where you can feel your feet on the ground. And, and there's a difference with meditation and mindfulness and, you know, and yeah, I'm not saying that everyone needs to be like sitting in lotus position on a, you know, cushion for two hours a day. It's not for everyone. That's a path. That's a major commitment, you know, but even five minutes of just, okay, how am I body scan checking in on the body more about 
being aware or being attentive to whatever is arising in the present moment. I think regardless, I think everyone has that capacity to practice that, even if it's for 30 seconds. I agree. Let's go circle back. You mentioned uh, music. Mm. So with ayahuasca, Icaros, that's been going on for millennia. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important aspect of the ceremony. Tell me, you know, with your program and your, basically your thoughts, how do you integrate music? I know that you have your own playlist, which I haven't been able to get through, or, or but you play, what I love is you've got a song every episode. Yeah, I love music so much. It's my medicine, so I, I kind of wanted to. Music is medicine. Yes. I mean, that's, and then you combine that with movement, and then, you know, and maybe that's your meditation. Pretty much, that's you know? what it's been my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, movement and, and Music and understanding what we what we know now about embodied cognition, and that's part of the reason that I also didn't do great in school, in elementary school, and high school, is that I actually think better when I'm standing up and Same. when I'm moving. Absolutely. And so I actually it's harder for me to drop into the a real flow while I'm sitting down. That's why I actually teach all my classes standing up at a desk, and there's space for me to move. That's right. So it's actually learning how we learn, and we all learn differently, and we also. Yeah, I'll have different minds and we celebrate that and finding, oh, how is my mind creative and what is my creative process? And music combined with microdosing and movement is just the trinity of the flow state trigger that helps my brain work at its best. I'm the same way. And I noticed uh, we didn't get to meet at the conference, but meet Delic when you spoke and gave your presentation, you were constantly moving. And I, mm -hmm. of course, can certainly appreciate that because in my prior life in commercial and corporate sales, when I was on the phone, that helped me concentrate. Mm -hmm. I was either talking to a client or a prospect. Mm -hmm. yeah. So movement has been a key thing to help me calm mm -hmm. my focus, keep focused on whatever mm -hmm. I may be talking about or the purpose may be. Um, and I integrate it throughout my day as well. You know, I take breaks to go on my, I get my best ideas on walks and there's different music that I have for different scenarios. And, and, and I'm always hunting for like the best music that just lights me up because it moves something within us. It taps us into, I mean, when you look at all cultures around the world throughout all time, they've all had a connection to music or to making some rhythm that then moves the body. It's just like divination, you know? And even when you think about creativity, I mean, that's really the essence of what it is. We're tapping into spirit. Absolutely. What about, um, can we talk about your Grow Medicine program? Yeah, it's a it's a project. That? Yeah, project? sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, that is the great. reason for these. Yes. A dark circles under my eyes right now. <laughs> so Grow has been uh, just, it's been birthing and now we're in like the, the push part of the labor. So I was about to launch Grow Medicine about a year ago and then some beautiful synchronistic magic happened where I aligned with people from the uh, River Six Foundation. And so they are launching the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. And they actually had in their plan to create something like what I'm creating with Grow Medicine, which is essentially a way for the medicine community to give back when they consume medicines, although it's also an education platform where we can help people broaden their narrative and understand that um, 
plant medicine conservation is so much more than just offering a donation. So there's two real main missions and purposes of Grow Medicine, but it's a donation-based platform and an education-based platform. And it's really a vehicle for building trust between Western mainstream culture and indigenous traditional knowledge holders that have been working with these medicines for a long time. And so actually it really clicked for me after I had my first Iboga journey where it really impacted me that I was a white woman in Western culture of privilege and I was working with a medicine that I then found out was very hard for local people to have access to because Western demand has been driving up prices in Gabon. And so it really did impact me. And I thought, okay. And I started having conversations with people and recognizing that a lot of people would like to give back and we're starting to get at the sort of beginning stages of the conversation. We're not using the word reciprocity and I can tell you why in a moment, but there's a lot of people in Western culture now who are working with psychedelics in the plant medicine space who are thinking about reciprocity and wanting to embody reciprocity, but there hasn't actually been a very convenient, easy way for people to make that kind of donation to a trusted organization um, that's well-vetted and that's indigenous-led, that's guided by traditional knowledge. And, and so essentially that's what Grow Medicine is. We're building an app. That's going to be phase two, but right now it's a mobile-friendly website. And we are going to be fully live at the end of May. And we're really, really excited about, about what that, that project is stewarding. And I'm very grateful that um, yeah, literally in a day, about a dozen people emailed uh, Miriam from the River Sticks Foundation and said, hey, have you checked this out, uh, this Grow Medicine project? And we had a meeting and then we ended up, I ended up uh, ha forming a partnership between uh, Grow Medicine and the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund that is supported by River Sticks and Dr. Bronner's Foundation. So we're really grateful for, I'm, I've learned an enormous amount in this past year. I feel like I'm getting a world-class education on what it means to respect and honor traditional knowledge holders that that hold, hold have been working with these medicines for a long long time and so part of the reason that we're not going with uh, the, the the narrative around reciprocity is that when people give back um, it's reciprocity is not transactional it's relational and that's one of the things that I've learned so much especially I'll give a shout out to Sutton King she is uh like my my sister on the fun side so she's the when there's a bridge <laughs> between us and she's afro-indigenous woman who's just a powerful speaker and a powerful voice and she's taught me an enormous amount about my blind spots you know and all of our blind spots and and even as someone who is thinking, oh, I'm going to I have this great idea, super creative solution to a very big problem that we face where all of these Western people are now starting to engage in psychedelic medicines. How do we actually, in, yeah, build a bridge between us and where these medicines actually came from? And reciprocity means that you start with consent. And a lot of these indigenous cultures actually haven't given widespread consent for use of these medicines. And again, it gets very nuanced with the different medicines that we look at and talk about and the different cultures and all of it. It's very complex, not black and white. Um, and 
what we're encouraging is to people to understand the 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 narrative of what it means to benefit share. So from reciprocity to benefit sharing, which is more akin to what the movement is doing right now. So if you are in a company or an organization or an individual or, you know, you're about to launch a big psychedelic company, um, best practice is to engage in benefit sharing. And that is really with the intention to help support biocultural diversity, indigenous sovereignty, and plant medicine conservation to thrive for the next seven generations. And we're in still such a reductionist mentality. You Without know, question. I mean, the one thing that we've talked about throughout this conversation, but not in Western world, is the lack of community. Mm -hmm. And these indigenous cultures they've always had community and they've never let it go and so yeah. we're looking at it a different lens and that's the scary thing for me personally when i think of the ecotourism where you have influx of people from the western world who are just overly eager to just jump in and not really realize that there's so much a myriad of things that they need to consider yeah, if you are consuming a medicine, a psychedelic hallucinogenic medicine, <laughs> your decision to do that in a ceremony, for example, has far-reaching consequences for the lives of people who are not in that circle, who are not Absolutely. in that ceremony. And going from a reductionistic, extractivistic uh, mentality that... Yeah, so the sort of the hook and the catch of of grow that people love so much is that it's easy to explain. You consume medicine, you donate to give it back. And then we need to educate for why if we just stay at that thinking, how we actually perpetuate the problem. And that it's much bigger than that. It's that that medicine is a part of a way of life. It's a relational, symbiotic relationship between community, between people, between culture, between land between other plants other medicines and so with benefit sharing when you drink medicine you can understand that your emotional health improves your mental health your and that impacts all sorts of different ways in your life and that's all intertwined it's all interconnected and so when you benefit share and you share in the benefits the multi-faceted benefits that you receive in your life that we give back to cultures in that replicate that multifaceted, you know, Absolutely. way that that medicine was just embedded in the center of a very interconnected web. And when you drink medicine, you are literally entering a web that you can't see the, the totality of that web, but you're entering this connected web with so many different people. And this is an invitation of how do I be in right relationship with this interconnected web? Yeah, because that's, Western society, we've been we've had our blinders in regarding that aspect, mm. um, and so right now you've got the female group. What about do you have a men's group that you're? I know that you've worked with athletes like Joe Hawley, mm -hmm. uh, who I know because he plays for the Falcons, and I mm. grew up watching the Falcons, but. How many athletes do you have, have you had in your program? Yeah, I've worked with a, a, just a wide range of high performers. Yeah, across, you know, from executive high performers to athletic high performers. But yeah, and, and mostly the, the, that category would, I would class, classify as like peak performance or high performers. Right. Mm -hmm. So is that, 
is that the criteria that must be met? Like you're not going to take on somebody who's in a deep depression and so forth. Not necessarily, <laughs> but I'm, I, yeah. And and again, my work is always evolving, and it's less like analytical in this sense. So, for example, and I really listen to the needs of my audience, and I pay attention, and I sense the gaps. That's a creative thinking skill that you can cultivate, mm -hmm. and that medicines actually teach you how to pay attention to the space in between what you can see. So when I was at Medelic, I had a lot of women come up to me and say, you know, and there's, we already know, so it's like tracking trends, engaging in futures thinking, you know, all of these are cognitive skill sets that we can, we can learn. Um, and I have had so many people express to me, you know, there's not enough women in, leading in the space. We know this. There's not uh, even close. I yeah. mean, what is, what do you think the percentage is? Ten uh, percent? I don't, I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's pretty. It doesn't. It's yeah. There's just not enough women contributing. Disparity. Yeah, their their voices, which is so funny because these are such feminine medicines. I know. Yeah, and so we really, I I just felt this very clear call, and it was that seed was planted at me, Delic, and I had a lot of young women coming up to me and say, you know, I want to speak on stage. I want to do what you're doing. I want to cultivate myself as a thought leader, although most people don't frame it that way. But that's I'm trying to encourage people to even think about what it means to be a thought leader. So, in a proactive way and get yeah. involved in, in the actual movement. Yeah. And then how, how do you teach yourself how to be a thought leader? That's pretty much what I'm doing with the, this cohort of women. And so I'll usually get an idea and then I'll sit with it and then I actually bring it into journey space. And then I just wait for the moment to be clear and to click into place. And then I'll put together the curriculum and put together a landing page on my website and announce it usually four weeks or six weeks before I start date. But it's like it's like being in a sea of noise and waiting for the channel to just open. And that's a very more of a nonlinear way of approaching business. And so and I talk about this actually in, in the program and because when people ask me, well, practically, how do you, you know, come up with an idea and implement it? And it's very much integrated in my own work with psychedelics. I mean, this is what I'm essentially teaching other people how to do. A lot of it's intuition, right? I mean, it's. It, it, I think there's a masculine and a feminine, and I think when we have structure and scaffolding that allows. I mean, think about it. When you go to a ceremony, you open a ceremonial space. That's what the the facilitator does. Why do we do that? So that they can come in and and take over. Or we release ourselves to them. Well, or to the medicine, you know. Well, to right? the right, right. So we're we're creating like when a I container. Say them, I mean the medicine, yeah, or yeah. the spirits of the medicine. Right. We open up a ceremonial container so that we can create a structure and a scaffolding so that energy and healing and intuition can flow more easily. So sometimes, and and that's actually a big framing of how I express it in the programs that I'm, especially in this one with women, because. Actually, there's a lot about the masculine of creating structure that then allows the intuitive feminine to be able to fully express. If I know that you got me, then I can actually make some bigger moves because mm -hmm. I know I'm being supported and being held. And that actually, that's how I build. So I go into the dimensions of my consciousness and I literally build out structures, scaffolding, programs. I am literally working with the medicine to create in a very different dimension where anything is possible, fully possible. 
And then I bring it and then I integrate it and then I think about it and I use my whiteboard every day and I mind map and then I wait for the that feeling. There's a feeling of the channels open, click, it's time, and I'll know that I'll launch a program and fill the program because it's what's needed in the space. All the different elements come together to click into place. And so that's really how I operate. Well, listen, I uh, I know that we've got a limited amount of time, but for I clearly our listeners overlap to a degree, and my listeners are probably going to be less experienced per se than yours, and maybe don't even know who Dennis McKenna is. Mm. But um, y'all should know Dennis. <laughs> that's my point. That's my point. Look him up, or actually, his brother Terrence. Yeah, but well, I mean, <laughs> both. Yeah, ambos, as they say in Spanish. But like both. Yeah, Dennis is a brilliant, yes, brilliant mind. I, I yeah. love him. Mm-hmm. I love uh, the two. It was two episodes. We did two. You did yeah, two. Oh, gosh, I've listened to both of them. They're fabulous. Mm. I uh, I really encourage anybody listening to, if you haven't yet, to listen to those two and many more of yours, for that matter. Thank you. But uh, also. Um, if they, if the listeners are, are interested, you've got an email list that they can subscribe to. Yep. And what else? Yeah. And, and if people are newer to psychedelics, I do highly recommend uh, my 45 questions to vet your shaman uh, guide or facilitator. Yes. That actually is probably one of my most downloaded. Um, I have a lot of freebies, integration guides, how to have a safe psychedelic journey at home. I have a free eight-day microdosing course that is really just all the basics. Um, and you can find that at lauradon.co forward slash downloads, or just go to lauradon.co and you'll see all the... And I'll share your links, obviously, yeah. on my podcast. But um, is there anything else that you would want to share yeah, just at the end of May, if you want to support the launch of Grow Medicine, please go Absolutely, and check out question. growmedicine.com. And uh, yeah, we're just, we will be live uh, at the end of May. And so I'll be announcing it while we're in Davos at, during the World Economic Forum. Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. that's great. Well, listen, Laura, thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk to you. And uh, I hope that People listening will continue to listen to your expertise and my journey as well. Mm, Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I believe it is evident that you can hear how emphatically Laura explores the relationship between psychedelics and creativity. She is an exceptional example of empowering success through psychedelic exploration and tuning our authentic selves through creative discovery. She's a wealth of knowledge in the psychedelic space that so many are exploring, and I'm very appreciative for her hard work and leadership in helping to destigmatize this journey. Our beliefs about creativity are impacted by our behaviors and actions. I also love Laura's challenge to explore and lean into our personal paths for creativity. Neurons to Nirvana is my creative path, and I always appreciate you, the listener, as you join me on this journey. Also, please check out the link to Laura's new website, www.growmedicine.com. Until next time, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Nirvana.